Hey, Jay, how come you never see chaos on the list of probable Summers brothers? Uh, Miles, I'm gonna have to go with because he's definitely an Eternal created by a computer. No, not that chaos. The other one. The personification of the concept of entropy? Jeez, how many guys named Chaos are there in the Marvel Universe? A lot. I mean, it kind of fits the theme if you think about it. I guess. But no, I mean the one who was on the X-Men. He basically looks like a cross between Havoc and Cyclops, down to his powers. Oh! Daniel Dash. Yes, Daniel Dash. So, is he a Summers brother? That, uh, that's a complicated question, Miles. Is it because of time travel? I bet it's because of time travel. Remarkably, in this instance, it is not. On one hand, Daniel is definitely not biologically related to Scott and Alex. On the other hand, if I recall correctly, his brain patterns and powers are at least partially patterned after Cyclops and Havoc, so by that measure, they're at least kind of related, although I'm not sure if brother is quite the word I'd use. So he's a clone? He's a self-aware cluster of nanomachines. And why did someone build a self-aware cluster of nanomachines based on Cyclops and Havoc? Okay, so you know how Cerebro has had a lot of different forms over the years? Professor Xavier's telepathic amplifier? Sure. Sometimes it's a box with headphones, sometimes it's a whole room, sometimes it's a very fancy hat. Exactly! And sometimes it's an evil robot who makes fake X-Men out of nanomachines and sends them to interfere with space launches to further its agenda of cataloging and safely storing all of the mutants on Earth. WHAT?! I'm Jay Editing. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 314 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Hey, episode 314. That's like pi to two digits if you then multiply it by 100. I love pi. It's one of my favorite desserts. I am solidly in favor of pi. I do also really like crisp, though. Oh yeah, well crisp is just, when you get down to it, kind of like a crunched up pie that's crunchier. It depends. I mean, I think, I think there are some things that work better as pies, some things that work better as crisps. What I do really desperately miss is, is getting recording day pie, because that was a very, very good ritual and I miss it. Oh yeah, because we used to write episodes at that place that had the amazing pie. Yeah, for many years this podcast was fueled largely by Loretta Jeans. Oh, I need to go back there. Uh, I mean, I guess for takeout at this point, but uh, still, you know, that would be good too. I wonder if they ship to New York. Maybe. Well, speaking not of New York, because this book takes place around Virginia, we're going to be talking about X-Factor today. It's not that far from New York. Yeah, that's true. The East Coast is kind of crammed together. Kind of like the stuff in a crisp. Yeah, this is going to be in the western part of Virginia, though, because it's in the Appalachian Mountains and in coal country. Mm-hmm. So, it's been a little while since we talked about X-Factor. What say you we talk about what they've been up to? Okay, so these days, as compared to its original iteration, X-Factor is the U.S. government's mutant superhero team. It's run by the team's government liaison, former X-Man Forge. The team's previous government liaison, the human Dr. Valerie Cooper, seems to be back too for some reason, although she's traded out her power suits for spandex and pouches, which I guess are their own kind of power suit. No one's quite sure what's going on there. It seems reasonably plausible to us that she just sort of decided to and refused to do otherwise, and people just sort of gave up on telling her no. I mean, I wouldn't waste the effort. Wouldn't work. So who's on the actual team? Oh gosh, let's see. There are two founding members still around. Those are Havoc, Cyclops' plasma-blasting brother Alex, and Polaris, mistress of magnetism and on-again, off-again daughter of Magneto, Lorna Dane. We also have a couple of new recruits. Shapeshifting villain Mystique, who's only there as an alternative to prison, and also because of the thing implanted in her brain that controls her ability to shapeshift, at least into X characters. Also on the team is former Alpha Flight member Wild Child, it's Kyle Gibney, he's freshly relevant after a significant alternate reality role in the Age of Apocalypse. 
Recently, Havoc lost control of his powers yet again, and while in a related fugue state, was chased around by multiple shady ladies. In all fairness, that's pretty much what happens when he's not in a fugue state, too. Valid point. One of those shady ladies was Fatale, henchman of Dark Beast, that being the evil, or dark if you will, version of Beast who traveled here from the Age of Apocalypse. Chromatically, I don't think he's actually any darker than regular Beast. He's gray to regular Beast's royal blue, but that's really the only cosmetic difference, or at least the only, again, chromatic difference. Speaking of gray people, former X-Factor antagonist and ally, Random, recently got a phone call from that very same Dark Beast, which resulted in Random killing his girlfriend and or mother figure Vera and leaving his old life behind. Ouch. Hey, maybe that's why the X-Men never pick up a phone. Too dangerous. Yeah, I, I don't think that goes well, and I mean, we saw recently what happens when you let a call go to voicemail. Oh, oh yeah, with, with Emma Frost and Iceman, that was, that was a nasty piece of work. It really wasn't. I know, but the comic treated it like it was. It just never really stops being funny to pretend that it was. Anyway, speaking of fascinating antagonists, not long ago, X-Factor went up against a prophet and religious leader named Haven, who proposed a third path to go alongside Xavier and Magneto's dueling philosophies. Unfortunately, that third path involved wiping out most of humanity, which would theoretically bring forth a utopia. And even less fortunately, it was largely inspired by the evil psychic fetus with which she was perpetually pregnant. Wow, that was a sentence. Apropos of nothing, a long time ago, the X-Men, aided by Forge's shamanic mentor Naze and the wizard Merlin's daughter Roma, fought a Cheyenne trickster god named the Adversary who almost ended the world. That's going to be relevant, too. God, I still, I still can't get over Haven. I'm still just angry about that story, or at least that particular aspect of the story. Prepare to be even angrier. And that brings us to X-Factor number 115, Reaching Out to Yesterday. This issue is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And, you know... You said to be prepared to be even angrier, but this is one of my all-time favorite individual issues of any X-Book. It is a phenomenal issue, and that kind of surprised me, and this is going to sound weird, but this is the start of Howard Mackey's run on X-Factor. He's going to be the writer of the book from now until the end of the series, then he's going to write the entirety of Mutant X, which is kind of sort of vaguely a follow-up series to it. Okay, I also love Mutant X, so... But the thing is, like, Mackey, I've always found him to be... He's a very competent writer, but he's not a flashy writer. He's not a super memorable writer. And yet I find myself liking a lot of the stuff that he's done. Like, he did the Gambit and Rogue miniseries, which, which I thought were pretty good. He has this run. He's done a bunch of fill-in work. Like, Howard Mackey's solid. He's just not as standout as some of the other writers are in that he just, you know, writes solid comics, sort of in a House Marvel style. Well, he's solid, and he is particularly solid with some characters that you don't tend to be very flashily visible for being solid with. One of them is Mystique. I love the way he writes Mystique. The other, who's at the center of this issue, is Havoc. Um, now, Havoc is also the main character of Mutant X, and that shows, but I think I, the version of Havoc in this particular issue, and in general that Mackie writes, is very much my definitive Havoc. Yeah, I don't know what mine is. Honestly, I think mine may be the Havoc from Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. I just thought that was a phenomenal version of Alex Summers. So I don't think they're incompatible, and I'm going to go into that a little bit later. But I want to go back to this issue because I absolutely love, absolutely love it. I, I will admit that for <laughs> for many years I have had um, a, a PDF of this issue saved in a folder of, on my desktop whose whose entire name is just feelings. I know what's in there. That that makes a great deal of sense. Yes. But before we get to the feelings, I'm going to start with the B plot. That's the X factor stuff. They've got a new base, it's fancy, it's clean, it's modern, it's high-tech, um, it's very Forge. Yeah, it's this, like, super modern building with random circuitry stuff here and there on it, sort of straddling this big natural waterfall, and yeah, that type of, like, precise, controlled, deliberate construction that also doesn't really mess with the natural world around it seems very Forge to me. It really, really is. And whether or not Forge built this place, he definitely reconstructed it pretty significantly. And among other things, he built a holodeck, which is where we first see him hanging out. He is meditating there. And interestingly, I think this might be the first time we see him without his prostheses. I don't remember. I, 
I would look it up when we're in the middle of recording, but I feel like we might have seen him around the life-death era without his prosthesis on. That's true. Oh, yeah, yeah, because he's, he, he goes swimming in that. But in general, when we've seen him before without his prosthesis, it's, it's been specifically an expression of vulnerability. And here it's not, which is really interesting. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's an expression of, of freedom, of having a space where he doesn't need to be anything but himself. Which is interesting to me, because one of the most compelling conflicts within Forge, I think, is his attempt to get away from his heritage, specifically the mystical elements of his heritage, through technology. And at this point in his continuity, he seems to have reconciled those two things a lot more. And I'm not sure if it's that he's matured as a character, or if the writers just forgot that that was a big conflict within him. Well, he's always had a complicated relationship with transhumanism, especially as it applies to him. And I mean, part of that and part of the likewise fraught relationship with his culture has to do with how he lost those limbs in the first place. Right. He um, summoned a bunch of demons in the war to avenge his fallen allies and ended up sacrificing their souls. And The fallen allies' souls, not the demons' souls. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. The demons ate the fallen allies' souls. It was, it was a whole thing. It was. Uh, didn't go great. Now... Speaking of figures from Forge's past, Forge is, is meditating in his holodeck when he is visited by, by what appears to be Spirit of Naze. And Forge assumes that this is, this is a hologram, this is the holodeck malfunctioning, but um, Naze insists that he's not, which, to be fair, is exactly what a hologram would say. What's he eat? I want to feed him! It occurs to me that we're only a year away from C-Lab 2021 presumably being reality. I mean, the direction things are going, I say, as we record this episode one day before the election, I mean, that level of utter chaos seems about right for the next year. Do you think it counts as, as potentially skewing results if this is coming out a week later, if I say that Joe Biden kind of reminds me of Captain Murphy? They do kind of look the same. They have some similar mannerisms. I feel like Biden would definitely try to feed a hologram of himself. Probably. Anyway, let's talk about who Naze is. So, Naze is Forge's mentor. They're both Cheyenne, and they're both shamans. Shaman? I'm not sure what the plural of shaman is. Shamans. Shamans. Okay. Naze died back in Uncanny X-Men number 187. He was killed by some dire wraiths who were villains from the old Rom Space Knight comic. How did he come back this time? Because, spoiler, he's not a hologram. He's real. We don't know and we never find out. What we do know, though, is the last time we saw him, it was the adversary in his form. Right, right. The adversary masqueraded as Naze as part of his plot to do, you know, bad stuff before Fall of the Mutants. Before Forge can thoroughly explore the situation with not-a-hologram Naze, Mystique busts in on him, and they have a fraught conversation about the holodeck, the implant in Mystique's brain, and Destiny's last words to Forge. Now, Destiny was Mystique's wife, and Forge was... The last person, aside from her killer, to see her alive. That was back in Uncanny X-Men 154 and 155 when all this happened. And what Destiny told Forge was to love Mystique, to take care of her, because they were destined to be together. Now, Destiny didn't specify in what capacity or context they were destined to be together, and Forge and Mystique have enough mutual antagonism to, to really kind of latch on to that ambiguity. I gotta jump in at this point and talk about the art, though, because this is a whole lot of Forge and Mystique just being dicks to each other and feeling bad about life, and that could be such a visually boring scene, but Steve Epting does this phenomenal job of panel layout across this conversation as Mystique and Forge are talking in Forge's new Airy, which, you know, is mostly platforms and minimalist furniture and stairs floating in space with just, you know, big tracts of nothing underneath and beyond. Ikea aesthetic motherfucker. It kind of is an Ikea aesthetic, but like more sci-fi. But there are these far shots, there are close-ups, there are varied angles, there are good and subtle bits of body language, there's deliberate eye contact and sometimes lack of eye contact. Like, was it Wally Wood who came up with those panels that always work for making dialogue interesting? The 22 panels? Yeah, although those didn't take into account the possibility that the conversation was happening in a holodeck. Right, so it's like Wally Wood's 22 panels, but, you know better, or at least more futuristically nonsensey. This is an issue that's really built around conversations, and you're right, Epting just nails it throughout. It, it feels much, much more action-heavy than it actually is, just because the staging is consistently so dynamic. 
And speaking of phenomenal character interactions and dialogue, let's talk about the part that I know you want to talk most about. Yes. Yes, I do, because the A-plot of this issue is 100% Summers Brothers stuff, and it's extremely earnest, and I love it so much. Now, for framing, look, we all know what Summers Brothers do when they have too many feelings. They run away to Alaska. Correct. Now, in this case, for some fucking reason, Alex has built a bucolic cabin at the site where the plane went down, which is a really weird choice, or at least the site where the plane went down in this continuity. It's, it's The location of the crash is really inconsistent across canon, but at least here, it's in Alaska. So, for anybody not familiar and who hasn't read your Amazing Cyclops one-shot, let's talk about that plane crash. And specifically, let's talk about how Alex's recollection of it differs greatly from Scott's recollection of it. Like that it exists? Well, and that there are freaking alien spaceships involved, but yeah, do you want to do a quick recap? Yeah, Alex remembers it pretty accurately. Yeah. What Alex remembers is that when he and Scott were kids, the two of them and their parents were flying in an old, restored de Havilland Mosquito, and there was a sudden flash, and they were attacked by a Shi'ar ship. The plane was crashing. Um, their, their mom found one still usable parachute, strapped Scott into it, threw Alex at him, and threw them out of the plane. Um, parachute caught fire on the way down. Uh, Scott took the brunt of the landing, which is the where, where the head injury that keeps him from being able to control his powers come, comes from. They were pretty immediately separated. Each one thought that the other was dead for the next decade or so. And it fascinates me that, according to this flashback, Alex very specifically remembers that there was an alien spaceship that caused the crash and explosion. That was a big deal revelation when Cyclops found out about it. And so I don't know if it's implied here that Alex simply forgot to mention it, or if it's just a sloppy retcon, or what. So what I would assume, based on Alex's backstory and what we know of his childhood post-crash, is that either Sinister wiped some of the details or blurred some of the details, or Alex assumed he misremembered it and had constructed that. Which seems feasible. Like, that seems like something that therapists would tell a kid had happened. No, that's a very valid point, actually. And given that, in its own way, Alex's post-crash childhood also involved a lot of pretty aggressive, if much more well-intentioned, gaslighting, you could see how he'd end up not really entirely trusting his memory of that either, but then once it's confirmed, reverting to that. So why has Alex come back here, of all places? So... Alex is here because his powers have been out of control recently. Everything feels out of his control, and this is where everything began, and kind of the last place where he had a family and felt safe, at least, until that all came crashing down. As Alex says, It's as if I'm hoping that my dad, my mom, and big brother Scott will be here to make me feel safe again. And they never are. Except this time, Scott actually is. He shows up. Not a lot actually happens here. They mostly have a long conversation about their powers and their lives, then get in a bar fight. But it's an amazing issue, and it's some of the best writing of the relationship between Scott and Alex that I've ever seen. This is a relationship that a lot of writers treat as really antagonistic, which I, just, I have never bought. Exactly. I mean, certainly Alex has a great deal of resentment towards Scott, but that seems to be something that he agonizes over when he's on his own. When he and his brother are together, like, yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, there's baggage, but they're family first and foremost. Yeah, Scott, they have, they, their relationship is really fraught. And I think that's entirely reasonable. These are guys who were really close as young kids, were separated for, you know, for a really long time, for most of growing up and then came back together under repeatedly bizarre and very stressful circumstances, and so the weird space of having been that close and wanting to have that, and also having, having you know, this, this relationship that was, in, that was and is incredibly important and revelatory to both of them, but always feels really high stakes, is enough to make kind of anything horribly awkward. Speaking of awkward, do you remember that time when we first found out that Alex existed when Scott took the X-Men to his graduation, and then an Egyptologist kidnapped Alex and tried to suck the powers out of him to turn into a giant magic pharaoh? And then he disappeared into the desert until he was scooped up by Scott Lang, but immediately after being rescued from Lang was kidnapped by Sauron? The hypnotic pterosaur. X-Men. 
The Silver Age is so ridiculous. So one of the things I really enjoy about the Silver Age, like, for real, unironically, is that at any given time, there are, like, 12 different plot lines all crashing into each other, and you don't get a second to breathe, and you don't want a second to breathe. No, the timeline there is 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 deeply bonkers, and I love it very much. But, anyway, Scott and Alex, so... The issues Alex has are with ending up in leadership positions and getting compared to Scott and the idea that Scott's something to live up to. Like, when Alex is in the desert being a geophysics grad student, they get along really well. Exactly. It's just when the world around them forces them to be in competition or at least comparison that Alex can't handle it. Well, and a detail to remember about Alex, too, is that he spent his post-crash childhood being expected to live up to an impossible theoretical older brother, who was the original son of the, the family that adopted him. Right, I always forget about that. Yeah, like, that's a huge component of his backstory, and it's one that tends to get overlooked. So again, this is a complicated and fraught relationship, but these are also... These are also characters who, consistently and canonically, if one of them, you know, picks up the phone, will drop everything and go wait into hell. Oh, come on, this is X-Men. Nobody ever picks up the phone. But I get what you mean. Something else I really love about their relationship as it's portrayed here, and that, that you know, Mackie's going to touch on again at later points and in, in other series as well, is the extent to which Scott feels responsible for Alex, and the extent to which, too, Scott, who is the absolute poster child for repression, genuinely gets that it's unhealthy, and he's literally, he's here trying to keep Alex from falling into the same patterns. Scott tells Alex. Alex. Please, I know you want to be alone, and we don't have to talk, but I can't and won't let you go through this by yourself. Not in the condition you're in. Sit down already, Scott. You're attracting attention. Can't we ever just talk, Alex? You want to talk? Okay. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Sorry I've been a burden to you since the moment Mom shoved us out of the airplane. I'm sorry I'm always losing control of my powers. Not like you, always in control, always in command. Bad enough I screw up my own life time and time again? No, I've always got to drag you down with me. Sorry, Scott. Nice talking to you. Alex, you've never been a burden to me. End of discussion. As far as the control thing... God, I wish just once I could cut loose. I envy you that. Yeah, right. Will you listen to me? Whatever it is you went through, whatever you're going through, you didn't and won't go through it alone. I was there with you then, and I'm going to be with you now. I love you, Alex. And then some dudes start hassling them, assuming they're a couple, and Alex starts to correct them, but goes, you know, fuck it, and everyone gets to blow off some steam in a great big bar fight. It's it's pretty excellent, yeah. I also appreciate that after the bar fight, Alex just zaps his powers into the sky, saying he'd been holding it in for a long time, and I've never thought about the plasma blast thing being like having to pee, but now I can't stop thinking about it. I mean, Scott's response is literally, I told you you should have gone before we left. <laughs> it's pretty great. But I really like the dialogue at the end, as they're sort of, you know, nursing their bruises and chilling out a bit around each other. And Alex asks, Scott, do you remember that day? Do you think about it? Always. But we've never talked about it before. Yes, I was scared. But maybe it was all my fault. Everything. Alex, you were just a kid. We both were. There was nothing either of us could have done. We can't change the past, Alex. And frankly, I don't know that I'd want to. The things that happened to us then have made us into who we are now. Despite it all, no matter what each of us has to face in the future, we'll be there for one another. Yeah. We will. So a side note that I always leave this issue thinking about, um, there's a substantial subset of fandom that reads Alex as a closeted trans woman, and that is a super, super legit read for reasons I will happily expound, but also, this is the issue where there just could have been a seamless coming out with almost no other changes. That would be fascinating, yeah, it's... 
It's hard reading older comics where, I mean, honestly, even in modern comics, I think Marvel would probably push back pretty hard against something like that. But oh, yeah. just reading these older comics and seeing so much potential for them to be clearer about diversity and identity, and they just weren't able to. I mean, regardless of the writer's intentions, those doors just weren't open. So this is a direction I would really love to see Marvel take, by which I mean I'd really love to write this, but <laughs> I mean, actually, I'd, I'd really love to write Havoc in general. Havoc is like my number one character I want to write stuff around um, for a lot of reasons. But in terms of, of the trans thing, this rings incredibly true to me, and Meltdown is actually one of their reasons for it. One of the things that came up when we discussed Meltdown is that Alex is kind of a chameleon. He tends to blend in behaviorally to whatever genre he's in or whoever he's around or whatever's going on circumstantially. He doesn't really have a set base identity in the ways that a lot of other characters do. And that's inconsistent writing as it exists now. However, it's also an experience really, really common to trans people. It's not a universal one, but that sense of nothing quite fitting and just trying on different versions of and identities that go with your assigned gender, trying to sort of shuffle around and figure out what works before working you know the bigger picture stuff out is is not uncommon and is 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 enough so that adding that detail would basically accomplish what Scott's patchwork memories do for the inconsistencies in the way his backstory is told. It would make what was previously inconsistency and previously continuity error into a cohesive narrative. That would be one of the best uses of a retcon that I can think of. I mean, also much, much needed representation, but I, I like it for both reasons. I love that point where, where those things dovetail. Seriously. Oh man, I want to talk more about this, but I guess we have three other issues to cover and we're already halfway through the episode, so uh, I guess we should dive into those. You know, we can we can reignite that one in the comments on this post at the, at the site or something. I suppose we ought to move on. So let's move on to X-Factor number 116, Homecomings. Written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Steve Epting, inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And in the words of the Bard, and now for something completely different. So, I, did we mention the name of the X-Factor HQ? It's called Falls Edge, and in addition to his, his big holodeck, Forge has been working on a much more specific and much more personal hologram project, and that is Shard. What's Shard's deal? Shard is a hologram that currently lives in a techno-bracer brought back from the future by X-Man Lucas Bishop. In the future, Shard was Bishop's sister. She died in the line of duty because she was a future cop like he was. But using, you know, technology, he managed to take her personality and memories and cram them into a bracer that he carried around. That allowed her to manifest as a hard light hologram in the Bishop miniseries. She sacrificed herself to take out the bad guy, but Forge has been tinkering with that bracer, trying to bring her back. And it seems to be working okay, because as Val Cooper and Mystique go to find Forge, they actually run into Holo Shard, who says hi. So it's taken as read that the hologram is Shard, which is interesting and, and one of those very, very complicated extensive philosophy questions, but also for me raises another tangential question— do you know if Shard's on Krakoa? Oh, in the modern era? I mean, yeah. I guess that would make sense, because this bracer did contain her personality and her memories and her identity, and as we know on Krakoa, you can take all those things and just, like, cram them into a newly created body, so I feel like they could make that happen. I mean, I think Shard dies eventually as much as a hologram can die, but, you know, it's X-Men, whatever. I mean, there are a lot of characters on Krakoa who've died before. There are a lot of characters in X-Men who've died before. Exactly. It's interesting to have Shard in this book, because she's going to become a, a major part of the team. She's going to become a member of the team. I kind of like it, though. I kind of like that a character who is very specifically from the X-Men and tied to an X-Men character is now an X-Factor. It makes the X-World seem more cohesive. Honestly, it makes total sense to me, and it actually surprises me that Bishop wasn't on this era of X-Factor, because she's a cop. Like, that's her thing. This is the team that it makes sense to put her on. Especially given Forge's technology fixation and powers. So, Shard disappears, Mystique and Val do find Forge, and obviously Mystique makes fun of Forge for probably having sex with a hologram. 
I mean, he's not having sex with Shard, but I think Forge definitely has sex with holograms. Hey, wasn't Madison Jeffries revealed to be robosexual? Yeah, and see also Wanda Maximoff, but I don't think it's a specific, you know, orientation thing for Forge. I think that he's just a really horny, self-hating genius. I'm pretty sure that's what his business card says. Horny, self-hating genius. But it doesn't have a name on it because Forge canonically doesn't necessarily have one in this universe. Yeah, I think he's Jonathan Silvercloud or something similar in a different universe, but he's just Forge here. Yep. Suddenly, there's an intruder alert from nearby. What's up? Well, radness is up, because nearby, Wildchild and his no-fear shirt is BMXing his way down a mountain until he's almost knocked off the edge of it by Aurora from Alpha Flight, who's really mad at him. Okay, let's talk a little about who she is, who Alpha Flight is, and what the hell happened. Oh, God. So this, uh, uh, Aurora is, is, is a whole kettle of continuity. Well, let's start with Alpha Flight, then. Who are they? Okay, so Alpha Flight are X-Factor's Canadian counterparts. And actually, they're closer counterparts to X-Factor than the X-Men because they're a team officially sponsored by the Canadian government, which, again, is is really shady in the Marvel Universe. Sure is. Aurora is the twin sister of Northstar. For a while, we thought they were elves. Turns out they're not. But Aurora's had some mental health issues almost since she first showed up. She's described as schizophrenic. It seems like it's actually dissociative identity disorder, which are often the same thing in comics, which is totally wrong, but still. And it's worth saying at this point that Aurora has taken a lot of the brunt of the generally extremely poor portrayals of mental illness in comics and in in Marvel comics. For more on that specifically, not Aurora, but that trend in general, um, you might want to go back and listen to episode 216 in which we talk to Arkham Sessions host and clinical psychologist and researcher Dr. Andrea Letamendi about specifically that issue and also to look up Arkham Sessions, which is literally about the stuff that I'm, I'm mentioning now. It's a great show. So I would assume, being an X-Men reader and not an Alpha Flight reader, that what Aurora is talking to Wildchild about, about how they were in love and then he left her and she's really furious about it, would be stuff that happened in Alpha Flight, right? Um, turns out, not so much. Now, I couldn't track down a copy of the last issue of Alpha Flight, which is number 130, but from everything I've read, everything she's describing actually happened between panels, like after that series ended and before Wildchild showed up in X-Factor. What the hell is this, Excalibur? I know, right? So... Wildchild, we've talked about his backstory a bit. Essentially, when his mutant powers kicked in, he started looking very animalistic. His parents abandoned him, and it was terrible. At one point in Alpha Flight, for very complicated reasons, he got all handsomified and started going by Wild Heart instead of Wildchild, which I gotta say... What? Well, I mean, if I got really handsome, I would totally start calling myself Wild Heart. That's a great name for a handsome guy. That's exceptionally funny. <laughs> I know, it's pretty great. And we find out that as soon as Wildchild got handsome, he started dating Aurora, and they had a great relationship. But then his powers got messed up again, and he went back to his previous appearance, and he just disappeared, like, out of nowhere without telling her where he was going. And that's why Aurora is justifiably furious. She's justifiably angry. I think the attempted murder might be a little bit past just at this point, though. Fair point. Thankfully, Northstar and Puck, other members of Alpha Flight, who have been looking for her since she disappeared from, you know, Canada, show up to break up the fight and also to threaten Wildchild because they're mad at him for what he did. Thankfully, X-Factor then shows up to help, and the two teams are actually mostly willing to talk? Well, most of them are. It's bizarre. Uh, Northstar and Mystique both really want this to turn into a brawl, but alas, they are outnumbered by their, uh, more reasonable compatriots. Wildchild himself wants to actually talk to Aurora, which, dude, maybe you could have done a while ago instead of just leaving in the middle of the night. Yeah, in fact, all of the other characters are basically talking around Aurora, and Northstar's all, how dare you do this to my sister, and you know, all that stuff, and, and Wildchild is, is finally like, you know, she's an adult human, and she's right here. And Wildchild explains his reasoning to her, saying, hey, I got ugly, I felt like I didn't deserve you, a, that's not your call, that's her call, and B, is Wildchild really- I know he's supposed to be ugly, but he just sort of looks like he has a slightly flatter face than most people would, and he's kind of short, and he has long fingernails. Like, he looks basically fine. Yeah, he's- he's not bad looking at all. Maybe it's 
a height obsession, but dude, you're on a team with Puck who totally can get it, so... Right? I don't know, maybe Wild Child just needs, like, an 80s makeover montage, at least to give him more self-confidence. I guess he doesn't have any glasses he could take off to reveal that he was beautiful all along. Look at that hair, though. He definitely already owns a blow dryer. His hair's phenomenal, whether he's Wild Child or Wild Heart. And Aurora, even hearing this explanation, is unimpressed, because honestly, it's some bullshit, and it reflects really badly on his idea of her and what her priorities are. You're sorry. You thought so little of me, of the love I had for you, of our relationship, and all you can say is, sorry. You made me feel ugly, as if I did something wrong. On one hand, I'm mildly disappointed, but I'm also really relieved that you didn't try to give her the French accent that she canonically has. I took high school French, and I think that makes me actually less qualified to attempt a French accent. I am grateful that Howard Mackey did not write the French accent. For serious. So, the fight is back on. Mystique kind of briefly breaks it up by turning herself into Wild Child's wild heart form, but that actually just makes Aurora even angrier, and she knocks herself out by blasting her powers too hard. Well, I, I, I guess that neatly ends that. Yeah, so Northstar picks his sister up and basically says, Dude, stay away from my sister, you asshole. You knew that she was fragile, and you treated her really carelessly. Which, um, yeah, yeah, actually, that's totally valid. Honestly, it would have been a dick move either way. The narration kind of seems to be on Wild Child's side, though. For years, Wild Child prayed for a chance at a normal life. A chance was given to him, and cruelly taken away. I mean, he cruelly took it away from himself by being a fuck-up. Like, don't get me wrong, I know Wild Child has had an incredibly traumatic past, and so I'm not saying he has to make every decision well, I'm just saying, in this situation, there is a clear person whose fault it was, and it's definitely him. Yeah, this is some Cyclops, no one will ever, ever love me because of my terrible, terrible eyes level bullshit. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, Aurora and Wildchild will eventually get back together again and the Weapon X ongoing, but that's a series where nothing good happens to anyone. I mean, fucking Peepers from the World's Tiniest Man story gets roped into doing dark and horrible things in that series. Peepers! Anyway, let's talk about X-Factor number 117, called Adversaries Old and New. You've guessed that this is going to be about the adversary? You're right. It is once again written by Howard Mackey, this time penciled by Steve Epting and Stefano Raphael, Inked by Al Milgram, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. So, as we've established, Havoc's powers are kind of out of control, held in place only by his awesome black bodysuit. And intense willpower in combination. In this extremely precarious context, Forge and Val Cooper, who are really terrible managers, have decided that the best thing to do is to borrow a sentinel from the government and stick it on the team as a test of some sort. See, this is why nobody trusts either of you. Legit. And it's not only Forge and Val who are watching the team's performance. We also see Dark Beast and Fatal using, I don't know, probably like one of those annoying drones that you see flying over parks all the time to watch as well. Were there really drones around at that point? I mean, it's the Marvel Universe. I'm sure there were. Anyway, they've got, you know, the the requisite villain room full of monitors, so... <laughs> yeah. There are parallel panels of, of Forge and Val and Dark Beast and Fatal analyzing Havoc's battle performance. He is a role more than a person to both in some ways, and definitely sort of something that's there to be analyzed and potentially weaponized. Like we were alluding to earlier, I feel like that's a big part of why Alex's life has always sucked. He's very seldom gotten to be just a person. Like, he and Polaris tried to just go be scientists out in the desert and make out a lot, and a fucking space shark fell on them. Yeah, let Alex Summers go back to grad school. If only. So, why are Dark Beast and his henchman Fatal so concerned about Alex? Well, as you mentioned, Dark Beast is from the Age of Apocalypse. This is a dark alternate timeline that we covered for a very long time on the show. I'll link back to the first episode of that, and also to the episode that most significantly involved Havoc. And in that timeline, Havoc was a villain. He was a really awful guy, and he was an ally of Dark Beast, and Dark Beast sees similar potential in this Havoc. 
I think it's kind of a disservice to both the main version of Havoc here and the Age of Apocalypse version of Havoc from that Earth to try to cram them into being the same character. Like, I realize it's a villain doing it, but the comic seems to be trying to make that comparison explicit as well. Again, I think that mutability, or that that speaks to the mutability that I was talking about before, and actually, if you want to go back to the Age of Apocalypse version, you can read that as a version of Alex who is overcompensating by just going headfirst into toxic masculinity. You're making a more and more compelling argument here, yeah. Anyway, Havoc gets a letter that purports to be from his ex, Scarlett McKenzie, from the Meltdown miniseries, but obviously is just leading him into a trap. So, what do we do when someone tries to lead us into a trap, Jay? We run off to Alaska. Wait, no, no, that's feelings. With traps, you just walk right into them, which Alex does, by himself, because even though he knows it's a trap, he's like, well, I'm not going to put anyone else at risk because I'm stupid and a bad leader. Okay, Alex, do you remember back in X-Men number 33 in the Silver Age when Cyclops has to go into Sidorak's dimension and he chooses Marvel Girl to specifically go with him because he knows how trustworthy and powerful she is? Alex, why can't you be more like your brother? Uh, I mean, uh, sorry. In that regard, I, I do feel like you, you, can, you can make that comparison. It's not really, you know, you should be a leader. It's like you should have some basic sense of self-preservation. That's, that's a good characteristic to foster regardless your life path. Well... This trap exists in the form of Random, who is very specifically working for Dark Beast at this point and has been called into action based on some favor he owes Dark Beast or some leverage Dark Pe Beast has over him. We'll learn more about that later. We're gonna we're gonna go into Random in more detail in the next issue, but he is he's a guy who had been teamed up with X Factor. Specifically, he was a mercenary who was hired to kill X-Factor, and then Alex, in a moment of really actually superlative leadership, realized he was a mercenary and was like, okay, well, what are you getting paid? We'll pay you more to come work with us. One of my favorite little plot bits from this era of X-Factor, yeah. But yeah, like you said, we'll talk more about Alex and Random and their fight shortly, but this issue has a B-plot, and remember that thing I said about how you should prepare to be even angrier about the treatment of Haven in the Marvel Universe? Well, here we fucking go. All right, so you mentioned the adversary. The adversary is back. Specifically, the adversary is Haven's perpetual fetus. And he wants to come back into the universe, and he does this by bursting out of Haven in an explosion of light as Roma looks on, disappointed. You reached too high, Haven. Too far. And in your pride, you have given the evil of foothold back into our dimension. And now it is to be born again. I would weep for you, but you brought this thing upon yourself, and soon upon all the world. Okay, first of all, Roma, that's some bullshit. Second, the general lack of adequate maternal health care in the United States is not Haven's fault. And she deserves so much better than this. Like, she had the audacity to have an adult sexual relationship with a person once ever in her life, and she, and she got her pregnant with, like, a literal evil god. I feel like that is not her fault at all. She got so screwed over. And, like, all of her evil plans? I mean, okay, part of that was just her, you know, interpreting things badly, but part of it was the evil god inside her. Yeah, this is like a fucking Joss Whedon comic. I shake my fists. Haven, you deserved so much better. Also, you deserve better than to die off panel, which is what you do here. I mean... Is this like Cyclops from the third X-Men movie, dying off panel and then never being mentioned again? What the hell? In, in defense of Haven's death, she was on an active genocidal campaign, so she's not really an entirely morally neutral figure here. Still, god damn it. Alright, now, I mentioned Roma. I don't think she's come up before in X-Factor at all, and she hasn't been in any of the X-Books for a really long time. Roma is Merlin's daughter. Yes, that Merlin. Yeah, she was around a lot in the Captain Britain series, she was around a lot in Excalibur. She's a sorceress, she tries to keep reality working. She was the opposite magic figure to the adversary in Fall of the Mutants, so of course she's showing up again as the adversary shows up again. She's also generally the keeper of the Siege Perilous. That is the magical gateway that you can jump through and lose all of your memory and sense of identity and come out someone else, which the X-Men did at one point. Well, Roma goes and finds the adversary's other, uh, adversary, Naze the Shaman, Forge's old boss, 
and they go off- Wait, wasn't he dead? He got better. Again. They go off in a pickup truck to go find Forge, and that leads us into the last issue we'll be covering today, X-Factor number 118, Havoc's Fall. Okay, I would totally read a miniseries about Roma and Naze's road trip adventures. I would too. Anyway, this issue is written by Howard Mackey, penciled by Brian Hitch, inked by Paul Neary, colored by Glynis Oliver, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Before we get into the whole Naze roma adversary thing, let's check in with Havoc and Random as they try to blow each other up real good. I mean, that's pretty much it. They try to blow each other up real good. Actually, Random has a lot of feelings at Havoc, too, which seems kind of unfair. I'm being forced to betray my friends! Get off it. The only friends you have are the ones who sign your paychecks. Who are you to judge what I am, or what I do, when you don't even know why? You think I like acting this way? Looking like this? Well, I don't. This isn't who I am. All you see is the tough-talking, muscle-bound bounty hunter. Because that's what I wanted. It's what I needed. But you guys in X-Factor are the closest thing to a family I've ever had. You complain about being in your brother's shadow, but at least you have a brother. I've got no one. Random? I. Don't. Care. Random has never really been anything other than a dick to X-Factor. It seems worth mentioning that. Like, he and Lorna sort of got along and he clearly had a crush on her, but that's really it. Yeah, this sensitivity, this backstory is clearly being retconned in, and on the one hand, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, apparently, Random's entire history with X-Factor was just Dark Beast trying to, like, get an agent in there to eventually capture Havoc, and that doesn't stand up to any plot scrutiny. But at the same time, I feel kind of bad for Random. Like, he's bearing his heart, and Havoc is just, you know, being a jerk to him. He's bearing his heart while he's doing his level best to kill Havoc. This isn't, like, the two of them sitting in a coffee shop. Not to kill Havoc, just to knock him out and turn him over to a mad scientist who will probably dissect him or something. Yeah, but it's specifically under a come-with-me-or-I-will-have-to-kill-you context, so as, ha- as far as Havoc knows, Random is in fact trying to kill him at this point. Well, eventually, after smashing through enough walls and other things to really justify this being an issue of a book called X-Factor, Random does successfully knock Havoc out. Good job, Random. And Random himself is beat up enough at this point that he's reverting to something. We've seen that his flesh is sort of protean, that he can basically melt if he's messed up enough. That's not what's happening here. Normally, he looks like Marvel's version of the DC character Lobo, and here he looks like a normal, if grayish-purplish teenage boy. Well, he, he mentions that he has to drop some mass because he's losing chemical cohesion. He has, to, he has to revert to a smaller form to hold himself together. But he still looks very specifically younger, and that really emphasizes how uncertain and helpless he feels in this situation. Back at headquarters, after a session in the game room, X-Factor's version of the danger room, Forge suddenly starts getting knocked around like he's in training to be a mime. Maybe he is. Maybe, but yeah, there's just some kind of invisible foe. He's not sure what's up, but we are, because we find that Forge is getting knocked around the same way that Naze is getting knocked around by the adversary. They're having a big fight. Okay. Roma isn't really helping. She's just sitting in the car, shielding Forge's location mystically, which is honestly kind of weird. I mean, she's essentially a goddess herself, and I feel like she should be capable of way more than this. It is interesting, though, seeing Brian Hitch draw Roma, since Hitch's style is very Alan Davis, and Alan Davis is the artist who has largely drawn Roma. We've seen before that how much power Roma has, and especially how much power she has on Earth, varies very significantly without her control based on mainly the balance with opposing forces. So I'll buy this. It would have been nice to have some more context, though. It would. So, the adversary wins because he's a freaking adversary. He knocks Naze off a cliff. <laughs> you can't kill Naze that way. You can't kill Naze most ways. Into what appears to be a pit of fire. Uh, you know, they're in the southwest. It's, it's very hot there. Roma teleports the fuck away to get help. Unfortunately, she teleports to Forge, which means even if the adversary can't follow her, he now knows where Forge, the guy that beat him last time, is. Damn it, Roma. Yeah. That's going to lead into the next arc of X-Factor, which is all about X-Factor versus the adversary. This was all just set up for that. In the meantime, though, we have one dangling plot thread 
you know, that whole thing where Havoc is now in the possession of Dark Beast. But no one's gonna worry about him, because Fatal, thinking ahead, left a note that she claimed was from Havoc. And Polaris picks it up, and it basically just says, I'm so sorry, I need to be alone, don't find me. And she just cries a little and doesn't go to find him. I don't know how to feel about this. What do you think, Jay? Does this, does this read as, as valid for this character? It absolutely does. So, I, I think it does anyway, because we are talking about a man who recently disappeared to Alaska because feelings. This situation is 100% plausible, and Polaris knows it. What Alex does when he's panicked, or when he feels out of control historically, is disappear for a while. He just leaves. And Lorna's known him for long enough to know that, A, leaving a note is a signi- is significant progress. <laughs> but B, tracking him down in the middle of that doesn't do much good. Still, I feel like she should have known the note was fake. I mean, it didn't have PhD clearly written and erased a whole bunch of times after his name and the signature. I think that just speaks to his level of despair. Oh, jeez, you're right. And so, yeah, that's it for Havoc being a member of X-Factor. He's not going to be on the team for the rest of the series, basically, and that's honestly also it as far as the X-Universe focusing on his and Polaris's relationship. They'll be romantically involved in the future, but it'll just sort of be an assumption rather than getting all that much attention from plot lines. It'll get pretty weird in the Chuck Austin run. There's a lot that's weird in the Chuck Austin run. So... Again, X-Factor continues to shift and change after Age of Apocalypse pretty drastically. We're now down to one founding member of 90s X-Factor, but it kind of feels okay. Like, I remember we were super annoyed when Excalibur dropped half of its characters between issues, and X-Factor dropped some, but at least with Strong Guy, Havoc visits him in the hospital, even if he's suddenly not a team member. At least with Wolfsbane, we get to follow her over to Excalibur. It actually feels a lot more organic the way this team is transitioning. Man, Farron should have joined X-Factor. Seriously. Now, obviously those smooth transitions are something we value tremendously, and so here we will smoothly transition to our listeners and specifically their questions. Nice. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Thoughts on how the Mojo Worlders living on Earth would feel about and interact with Twitter and social media? I think that they would be baffled that the idiom cancelled doesn't mean a gruesome death. Oh man, yeah, I'm, I'm mad at J.K. Rowling, but uh, I guess I wouldn't wish that upon her. I, I think that in general, they would find it a little bit baffling in the, much the way that, like, hardcore career soldiers would find, say, Rock'em Sock'em robots a little baffling. I think it would really differ with the different Mojo Worlders. Like, I feel like Shatterstar would take to social media like an overly enthusiastic fish to water. Shatterstar's all about public approval, and he's charming and engaging in a quirky and memorable way, which I think would serve him well on social media. Although he'd probably get banned on the regular for posting a bunch of naked pictures of himself and never really understanding why he wasn't supposed to. I think that, yeah, I think think Mojo Worlders in general would be poised to very effectively use social media in ways that involved monetizing it, in ways that involved a lot of metrics and a lot of tracking, because that's the way, again, that they're they're poised to interact. They're used to thinking of the people around them and the people in the larger world as an audience. Well, Longshot, I mean, he's only sometimes on Earth, but I feel like he would actually be sickened by the parallels of Earth's social media to the depravity in his own dimension. I mean, assuming this was one of the times when he had memories of his past. Otherwise, I think he would just post pictures of his lunch and cute cats on Facebook. Yeah, I think he would enri- he would really enjoy some aspects of it, but you know, the idea that it's people voluntarily performing in, you know, to connect to each other. But I, I think he'd find the more explicitly perform- performative and monetized and obligatory parts of it really upsetting. Spiral would just find it all hilarious. She would be the worst troll. My God, Spiral is Spiral just is is all over weird Twitter. So another anonymous listener asks on Tumblr. Since Miles recently proposed having a new X-Men animated series, if such a series were produced, who would you want it to have as a Kitty Jubilee-style audience insert character? So Kitty and Jubilee are great characters, but I feel like they've each had their day in the sun, and they've each matured into really interesting adults. So let's get somebody new. My first instinct would be Glob fucking Herman. 
He has a loosely defined crappy past, an appearance that means he can't pass as human and would bring the X metaphor much closer to the series, and he's one of the most charmingly written young X-Men characters right now. He has chickens. He does have chickens. The only downside is that having Glob as the audience surrogate would mean that the series would be in metaphor mode basically all the time, and I don't know that you would want that if this was going to be a sort of version of X-Men that covered all of the different X bases. I feel like Glob is good. I don't know that he could carry an entire series, which is actually something that, that, I, that, that came up with a lot of the characters I thought of. So what I ultimately came up with is that there wouldn't be one in-road character. It would be a rotating crew, sort of like X-Men Evolution had. That wouldn't be so bad. Yeah, just have a younger cast, whether it's the New Mutants or Generation X or the new X-Men uh, from, you know, the one with Surge and everybody. That could be fun. And I think, I think that's something that a lot of the characters that you've come up with would fit really well into as well. Yeah, because I was also thinking maybe Gabby Kenny, a.k.a. Honey Badger, or Scout. Uh, she, if anyone isn't familiar, and they should be, is the young clone of Laura Kinney, a.k.a. X-23, a.k.a. the best Wolverine. So, in the old series, the old cartoon, the Logan-Jubilee relationship was pretty central, and this could kind of be an update of that with Gabby and Laura. It would bring some of the newer, incredibly compelling characters to the fore instead of just going with the old standbys once again. It would still check the claw box, because you, you would have... Not one, but two Claude characters with healing factors. You probably have to age both characters up a little, but, like, I'm fine with that. Or maybe, I don't know, Evan Sabiner, which is to say Genesis or Kid Apocalypse. Ooh, I love that idea. Yeah, or Hope Summers. Like, both are very well-defined, interesting characters, and they have backstories that tie into some really core X-Men stuff. Actually, here's a question. What about Eva Bell? You know, I thought about her, uh, that being Tempest from Bendis' X-Men run, but I feel like... Kind of like how Glob Herman would force the series into metaphor mode all the time, whether he wanted to or not. The fact that Tempest's powers are time travel based would force it into timeline history modification mode all the time. No. You know what it would do? It would let her do the Zach Morris move. Oh, where she could just like stop time and talk to the audience? Uh-huh. I hope she'd be less of a dick than Zach Morris. Wouldn't. Fair point. You know who aren't dicks? Our listeners, they're great, and certain levels of support on Patreon that they give us come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Behold, the angry Claremontian narrator. Really, Jennifer Gilbert? Really? You, of all people, should absolutely know better by now. But no. Ruth Gibbons pulls your strings... So easily, you might as well be a marionette. And I can only assume that she always will, given that neither of you has thus far shown any propensity whatsoever to learn from your many, many mistakes. And here, somewhat to my surprise, the mic goes over to the one and only, or at least assuming that it's, it's not one of the many bots, Dr. Doom. Doom is a master of the arts, both sorceress and scientific, a paragon of power across order and chaos. Dr. Henry McCoy, across the multiverse, has been both as well. And yet this dark incarnation of the beast, unfettered by feeble morality, wastes his talents attempting to recruit an insecure college dropout. The Lesser Summers. Better that fool McCoy binds the fascinating Cory to his cause. Her ability to manipulate the very arcane fabric of reality could nicely complement Beast's scientific acumen, and she whines much less than that mewling havoc. If McCoy must eschew Ether for the Atom, then let him embrace the puerile obsession of his master, that fool sinister. The genetics of James Forrester Gray could certainly provide more to Dark Beast's endeavors than would Alexander Summers' twin abilities of plasma redirection and self-pity. Come, Dr. McCoy. Recruit well. Or at least rule your own country. Even Sugarman does that. Jeez. And with that, 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll continue to work our way through a veritable avalanche of miniseries with Wolverine and Gambit. First, I feel like we should establish that he's not actually wearing a No Fear shirt. No, Jay, he is. He very specifically literally is. I looked. He's not. No, he is. I looked it up. I promise. It's not always drawn. Okay, fine. I promise I'm right. Because I was obsessed with this fact.